There's another entity like the caretaker out there somewhere who has the ability to get us there a lot faster. We'll be looking for her. And we'll be looking for wormholes, spatial rifts, or new technologies to help us. Somewhere along this journey, we'll find a way back. Mr. Paris, set a course for home. I kept. Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge. This is Tyler Orton, feeling very confident he will not come down with the phage because he got his Moderna vaccine today. (laughs) No, it's not the phage, it's the phage! True, true. <laughs> yes, we are here this week, folks, to rank the Voyager seasons an assignment. I think it was easier for me to determine an order than maybe some of the, you know, DS9 or TNG. But when I was breaking down individual seasons, there was a lot of what was that episode about again? Uh we're totally not on the right wavelength here and would you say that it's way easier for you to rank this because i'm looking through voyager cam and I, I i am reaffirmed in my longtime feeling that this might be the most schizophrenic star trek series in existence and like the show is just all over the place there are just some fantastic standout episodes there are some outright stinkers and i think more than anything else there's forgettable adventures too And they're just kind of stuffed within all of these seasons. So when I'm ranking them, I I really have to think about how everything holds up holistically. And I think this is kind of where you and I have always differed. And like what you've been looking for in these rankings are like what seasons have the most, you know, standout episodes for you. And I'm always kind of thinking about how these things hold up together more holistically here. So this is why I think this has actually been the most difficult one for me to rank. And that that might actually be interesting for us in that our rankings may differ. And I think what we've agreed to in the past is we do have to come to a consensus for the definitive rankings of Star Trek Voyager. Very true. And it is interesting, though, while we do take different approaches, in the past, our rankings have been pretty similar. You know, there's disagreements here or there, but only usually by, like, one spot or something. Like, we want to put it, you know, I say I argue for a season being at number seven, you think maybe number six. But we haven't had the wild, you know, um, divergence in opinions. Yes. So, Kim, why don't we kick it off? Um, do you want to start with your number seven season here, that your least favorite Star Trek Voyager season of all time? Sure. So, for number seven... I picked season one, and I didn't go into this thinking I would have season one at the bottom. But just when I look at the episodes across the board, I found it was a real, like, 50% kind of season. Where, like, half the episodes are, you know, good to, there's really only, like, maybe one standout in the season. And then it's, like, a lot of just kind of, like, eh, kind of episodes. I found it very hard to feel passionate about kind of the collection of episodes and when you have learning curve as your finale it's hard to even argue about sort of a trajectory of a season because you know as we've um, mentioned before on the podcast the 37s was supposed to be the finale which would have felt like a very fitting finale to a season of Star Trek so it kind of feels like a season cut short. Cam, this is going to be an interesting episode tonight, uh, because number, <laughs> uh, uh, season one is not at the bottom for me. And okay. uh, you mention it, and, and again, I, I think about this season holistically. This season is far more consistent than the one that I have at the bottom of my list here, which is season seven of uh, Star Trek mm. Voyager. Season seven, you know, uh, Kenneth Biller takes over as showrunner as one Bronnen uh, Braga takes off to go develop Enterprise. 
And I was excited. I, I had a lot of high hopes. I really liked Biller as this longtime writer for the series, and I just felt let down throughout. You, you kick it off with Unimatrix Zero, which not really that exciting of a season premiere. You end it with Endgame, which is a serviceable finale, not a spectacular one. It's one very derivative of all good things. And what I have in between is me never really feeling as if like the characters were getting proper send-offs. You know, this is your final season. This could have been season six for all I knew. You know, we, we it just didn't feel as if this was the journey coming to a close, despite the great moments. Perhaps my favorite moment in Star Trek Voyager's Endgame, which is where Harry proclaims to the journey. The one thing that I will say this one has going for it is there aren't that many outright stinkers in this one. You know, body and soul is fun, if not a little problematic. Flesh and blood workforce, much better than I remembered as two-parters going in. And I think Shattered was just a great Chakotay showcase episode. But... Not a whole lot of episodes that get me all that excited, whereas I look at season one, there's actually more than a couple episodes that I'm just like, yeah, I, I love that one. Uh, it, it really reaffirms to me why I'm in with Star Trek Voyager for another seven seasons. Yeah, I mean, seven is one that, believe me, I didn't rank seven that highly. Um, although, you know what, actually not that close to where you're putting it. So I guess there is some, yeah, differentiation here between our rankings. And Seven was one where I felt like they... I think maybe took the wrong tact in terms of wrapping up a series. They probably should have made it more, um, you know, direction um, oriented and that we are aiming towards the end of the show. It does feel more to me like a season of character stories. So I'll, some of those really work for me. I didn't have many duds in season seven, but it feels like it's a show that's just kind of almost like we're almost in mid-season in season seven where it's just like, I don't know. What happens if Tom Paris gets in a uh, race? That could be fun, right? Um, not necessarily what you want as you're <laughs> gearing up to the, pardon the pun, endgame. Who do you think got the best send-off? Um, Neelix, maybe? Yeah. yeah, I agree. And Homestead. What, what does that kind of tell you about how they were wrapping up this journey? You know... As like a season long arc going in, you knew this is going to be kind of the finale. You know, this is going to be the last outing. I just kind of wonder like how this one stacks up for me. I utterly, or I ultimately, I should say, felt deflated by the time I got to the end of the series, you know, and this doesn't ruin the journey for me. You know, I'm going to quote Harry once more. doesn't ruin the journey for me at all, but I just felt like very underwhelms in a way that um, I think only learning curve w- would be able to match that feeling of being underwhelmed. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. How are you underwhelmed when you have the great romance of Seven and Chakotay? Okay, well, you've convinced me. To carry you through to the end of that journey. That's the journey that Harry was actually talking about. <laughs> yeah. well, we do have to come to a consensus. Let me make my pitch to you for why I don't think season one belongs at the bottom of the list. Uh, maybe it doesn't quite deserve to be as high up as I have it, but uh, maybe we could come to some sort of compromise here. Uh, season one, I think you make a very strong argument that it is the best first season of Star Trek since the original series. I think it's only recently been eclipsed by Star Trek Lower Decks. Caretaker, Cam, I, I think we've agreed. Caretaker mm-hmm. is the best series premiere that Star Trek has had, right? Um. Yeah, I think we settled on that, right? Yeah. Um, the uh, yeah, I mean the DS9 one, I think is very good thematically, but in terms of actually, uh, you know, a ninety-minute entertainment, uh, Caretakers uh, more successful. You also have some great, like some very solid character episodes. This is all about kind of setting up your characters and your universe here. But you have Jatrell, you have Faces, which deals with uh, Bolana's identity. You also have high concept stuff like introducing the Vidians in the Phage, and that's followed up again with Faces, and just an adventure like Eye of the Needle. Like these are very solid episodes. There's not really that many stinkers. I look at Learning Curve. It is not a good finale. It's not a horrible episode. It's more like one of those episodes that I alluded to before, where it's just it's very forgettable. Let me pitch this to you, Cam. What if the Thirty Sevens? which was intended originally 
as the season finale for season one before it was bumped out and became the season premiere for season two. What if the 37s closed out season one rather than learning curve? Would your opinion on season one shift at all? To me, they're very close. But the thing about season one is when I look at the percentages, it's really like a 50-50 kind of, you know, breakdown for me where it's like, Half the episodes are so unmemorable or uninteresting to me that that's kind of the problem where the episodes you named, I had on my good, you know, category. Like, those are the ones I really dug. Eye of the Needle was my favorite of the season. Um, there's some really good episodes. It's just that it's such a inconsistent season where it feels like a show that, you know, we haven't talked about Enterprise yet, but it's kind of like that early Enterprise where we got a great concept. Sometimes they're really locked in, but a lot of times it feels like they're kind of giving us tired Star Trek stories. Would your opinion on the season change at all if the 37s closed out the season? Uh, no, I don't think it would, because that's just kind of the well, cherry on top. And, that's what, I was that's what I'm getting at. That's yeah. where we fundamentally differ. And, and like, I'm thinking about things more holistically, and you're thinking of it more at the granular level. About like, the, like you're looking at sheer volume of uh, episodes that you like, though. Um, I, I still think that season one, far more consistent than season seven, which is just really all over the place. Like, I, I just, I, I don't like season seven. And, and like, if you have season seven as kind of a, uh, a mid-tier season, I, I fundamentally kind of disagree with that. I'm, I'm wondering, like, how close to the bottom we might be able to arrange these ones. Or, or do you think we're going to have to go to uh, perhaps a dice roll in this case? Or do we set these two aside, side by side, basically, and then move on and then just determine where they fit in? Um, how would we then proceed with the next one? Um, hmm. It's a good question. I guess we would name our next, you know, in, in line and just see how much we diverge from there. Okay. Well, uh, okay. Maybe, th maybe these two belong side by side in some way and we move on from there. Okay, well, why don't we give that a try? If it gets a little messy, we can uh, course correct rather quickly. Uh, so the sixth season, uh, my, my number six season is in fact season six of Star Trek Voyager. Uh, this was the one featuring Ron, Ronald D. Moore's very short run. He's only, I think, credited on like uh, maybe four episodes before he departed the series. And we did get an episode like Barge of the Dead, uh, you know, that he uh, contributed to. And I believe, like, that that's a solid Bolana character-based episode. They never really paid much attention to Bolana. When Ron Moore ended up doing that Cinescape interview after his departure, he just articulated so many of the issues that I had with Voyager as I was watching it. And yes, even running my Star Trek Voyager fan site at the time. And look, Star Trek was feeling stale. The The... Character development was often tossed aside on Voyager for some plot points. But I, I absolutely adore an episode like Tinker, Tanner, Doctor Spy, uh, Blink of an Eye. I know that's one of your all-time favorites, Cam. But stuff like Fury just leaves a bad taste in my mouth. That Fairhaven arc is just weird. And um, you're not really going out strong with Unimatrix Zero as your cliffhanger either so i i have season six as my number six season we are definitely all over the board in comparison with each other i think this week this is really going to be interesting i think because i had it uh ranked also up much higher um yeah for me like again the episodes you named i uh, i really loved um season six was one where i i i feel like for me the differences maybe is i think when you get to well, season six, I'll emphasize because that's the one we're talking about. The characters are so in place that I feel more connected to the, sh to the show across a season where I'm actually much more on board with the characters than I am earlier on, you know, when I talked about season one, for example. So season six, like I agree, Fury was the one I underlined as by far the low point of the season. Um, but there was a lot more I was positive on. Um, there's a lot of really fun episodes, I thought, that were kind of character-driven things, like Tsunkatsi, which was a 7-1. Um, I thought The Good Shepherd, which had Janeway as a mentor, was really fun. I felt like this season, they were coming up with some creative stories and plugging the characters we love into those. I I'm not as down on this one as you are. That's really interesting. Okay, so you've defended season six. Um, 
what would be your number six season at, at this point? Because I wonder if this um, number six ranking, it's going to determine whether or not you, I, I don't know if a consensus is going to be possible. Yeah. And either we, we start doing the dice rule or maybe we share very divergent season rankings as well. Maybe we can post those on the blog just in case it uh, risks becoming a little bit too confusing. Yeah, we might have to do that at this rate. <laughs> okay, so let, let's hear your number six. Yeah, I, I had season three um, next in line for my number six spot. And I, I just remember the experience of watching season three feeling very frustrated in that I had dug the concept of the show. I thought they set it up very well in Caretaker. And I was, you know, still along for the ride season two. And I remember season three feeling like, I just don't know if they know what they're doing. And this show just feels like it's losing energy for me. And there's good episodes. Like, um, you know, the season, of course, closes out with Scorpion, which is like one of the all-time great um, cliffhangers in Voyager. Um, there was episodes like Distant Origin, which I really enjoyed a lot, or Before and After. Um, but I just remember feeling like they're finding, you know, nuggets of good ideas throughout Um but it doesn't feel like they're locking them into episodes I'm passionate about. It feels like very mid-level Star Trek without the inspiration that I need from the franchise to kind of keep me hooked through a season run. Um, so I think it's, yeah, really interesting that for you, like, that was more of a season six feeling of, I just am not connecting to this. Whereas for me, season three was the one where I was like, this is feeling tired, even though, you know, Future's End is a lot of fun, flashbacks fun. There's fun things in there. It just felt like... It was a season that just didn't grab me as much. Yeah, uh, season three is not a bottom tier season for me. So it's like, I, <laughs> I, but I, I think our conversation is perfectly representative of Voyager fandom at large, Cam, in, in that what we've talked about for a long time is there doesn't seem to be a real consensus among fans about like top 10 episodes. You go to any list or you ask any fan their 10 favorite you know, Voyager episodes, you might get a couple that are the same, you know, maybe a Year of Hell or, or a Scorpion, but otherwise it's just wildly divergent lists that you're going to get. And I think what we're doing is, is a very wildly divergent ranking of what works for us in Star Trek Voyager. And I, I just think this is the perfect <laughs> episode to represent the series as a whole. Well, we've so often talked about that uh, phenomenon you're talking about of Voyager, everyone has different opinions, and we're really seeing it in practice unintentionally here. <laughs> so, okay, moving forward, do we want to have divergent rankings? Like, we've always tried to come to a consensus, but I feel like we're both just going to get frustrated and unhappy with whatever the rankings ultimately end up being. And I don't think that was the feeling that we had when we were doing our prior rankings of TNG, Deep Space Nine, or early Star Trek. I think we have to because if we just base it all on dice rolls, yes, <laughs> I don't even maybe uh, I don't even know what that fi final thing is. Like we finished the dice roll, and for some reason, season one winds up the greatest season of all time, and we're scratching <laughs> our heads. Yes, <laughs> like how did that happen? <laughs> uh, okay, so what? Why don't I recap what we have uh, so far um, for you? Uh, number seven is season one. Number six is season three. And for me, number seven is season seven, and number six is season six. So, right. yeah, we, we are not seeing eye to eye, and I don't think we will, and I love it because that is what <laughs> Voyager is all about, sir. It, it, grant me this. Do you not think it is perhaps the most wildly inconsistent Star Trek series out of all of the ones that uh, have, you know, donned our television screens? Yeah, 100%, because I don't think... Well, you know when you look at Enterprise, um, a lot of people will come down hard on Seasons 1 and 2. There's fans who really like Seasons 1 and 2, but everyone agrees once they hit 3 and 4, that's when the show is really clicking. Whereas with Voyager, I think people's opinion, as we're seeing, very much vary as to when the show was clicking. <laughs> yeah, it just, it, it, it's, it, it's such a weird show. In that, like, you yes. can, I, I also get the sense there are at times maybe too many cooks in the kitchen, and they also leaned more into what Ron Moore was saying, and that, like, they, they would hit, like, plot points more often than they'd give consideration towards, like, 
organic character development or decisions being made based on what characters would actually do. And I think that's why you get like the, this inconsistency throughout the show. And I don't want to make it sound as if I don't like Voyager. I do. There, there's just enough fantastic adventures with, and I like the characters and the actors too. It's just, the show's just all over the place. Yeah, it's the show that I feel, as much as I love a lot of episodes of Voyager, it's the one I feel in some ways the most disconnected from. And I, I think I, at some point, need, need to do a Voyager rewatch. Because um, I've done rewatches of all the other shows, except for maybe the animated show, uh, the original animated series. But um, it's one where it always, I feel like, held me at arm's length a little bit. And it is that inconsistency. It is the fact that, well, no fans really have, you know, a consistent deci uh, decision as to what the greatest episodes are, what the greatest seasons are. It just feels like a show that everyone's experience is so different, and I don't feel like my experience is fully formed just going through it the once. Well, it's also a little unfair considering that you've watched every episode of Star Trek Picard three times, and a lot mm. of uh, Voyager episodes only once. True, that's very true, and same with Discovery. I've watched, except for season three, Discovery. I've watched those twice, but yeah, you've watched season three, Discovery, four times. <laughs> Um, yeah, like I've watched all the new Star Trek shows multiple times, you know, the original series, TNG, DS9, Enterprise. It's it's Voyager is the standout one that I've only gone through the once. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, Cam, what is your number five season? So my number five was season two. Um, it definitely seems like for me, it was the kind of the pillar Jerry Taylor era, which fell at the back end. I also feel bad because that's the Kess era, but... And it's actually nothing against Kess. I actually really like Kess as a character, but it feels like that's the time period where they haven't really found the really strong focus. And I think Seven of Nine does a lot to, um, I guess, right the ship for me. Um, so I had season two, and going in, I thought maybe it would be um, maybe behind season one. But when I really break it down, this is where I think they kind of lock into what is going to be very strong going forward. You know, episodes like Death Wish... Um, the life, uh, life Science is one of my favorite Doctor episodes, and it comes fairly early. You know, season one, I got Heroes and Demons. I got Beowulf recreations. Finally, in season two, we're getting things like Life Science, which delve into the actual life, the inner life of this character. Um, so I'm seeing a lot of good things coming out of that. We also close off with Basics, which is fantastic. And we open with the 37s, which is one of my favorite episodes of the early era. So that's why, for me, this one ranked... At the highest of those kind of the first three, you know, I guess we can call them the Kess seasons or whatever you want to call them. But um, yeah, so for me, that was season two. I would like to think of them as the Michael Pillar, Jerry Taylor seasons myself. Sure. Yeah, yeah. totally fair. I think it just, I think some fans, maybe not as familiar with the behind the scenes, would just call them the Kess seasons. Fair enough. But yeah. Yeah. I, I, the thing that I appreciate is that they are building up to basics. It's not as if it just, you get the rug pulled out from underneath you. You have the Seska revelation. You have Mike Jonas as the Maquis trader. Uh, you are kind of building up to what ultimately is like, maybe the best cliffhanger uh, season ending cliffhanger that uh, Voyager has had. And you mentioned a lot of great episodes, but it is interesting that you have a strong one, like the 37s to kick it off, which was supposed to be a season one episode. You also have projections with the doctor and Reg Barkley's, well, quote unquote, Reg Barkley's first appearance. And that was a season one holdover as well. So it, it's kind of kind of weird how, like, I, I don't want to take anything away from the season because I don't have it ranked as low, obviously, as you do, based on how divergent our rankings are. But I, I think, <laughs> you know, season two is pretty solid and, and they are getting a, a better hold of what the series is meant to be than I think what they had in season one. Totally. And I mean, Prototype is my one of my all-time favorite hidden gem Star Trek episodes. That falls into season two. Also, one of yours, Tuvix. Like, even when they're coming up with high concept stories that don't necessarily feel like they had to be Voyager stories, they're really strong ones here and there. And those two are good examples of that. So my number five, we don't need to relitigate it too, too much, but this is where I have season one. I find it to be more of kind of a, a mid-tier season rather than a bottom-tier season. And with season one... To me, it's just like, yes, this is how you start to set up your universe. I think Caretaker is just a fantastic way to do that. 
I don't think Voyager ever really lived up to the promise that was, you know, kind of given to us at the end of that episode, but it doesn't matter. It's still such a strong 90 minutes right there. And look, I, I just like the way that it is fun to go back and watch early seasons and just see how wildly different some of the characters are. But what I noticed in Star Trek Voyager is the characters are fairly consistent. For, for such an inconsistent series, the, the show kind of mm-hmm. knows its characters very, very early on, and I think that's quite interesting, except for all the Neelix's jealous of Tom Paris sort of stuff that I just had zero patience for at the time. Yeah, that stuff is pretty bad. Um, you are right, though. A lot of the characters feel very locked down. The Doctors doesn't have much to do in the, in the premiere, as I recall. I'm actually reading right now that Voyager anniversary book that came out fairly recently, the 25th anniversary book, and they talk about the Doctor and how Bob Picardo really thought he had the worst assignment on the show. He thought, well, okay, I've kind of got the boring job, but um, this is going to you know, pay for my kid's school. It's a steady gig. It's a great job to have, so I'll just go with it, not realizing that he would wind up with one of the best roles on the show. And yeah, you see that over the trajectory of even season one. Like They definitely feel like they're understanding their characters very quickly. What do you think it was about the doctor in that, like, I, I get what Bob Picardo is saying there, you know, it's just like, he's kind of stuck in one room and what is there really for this character to do who seems to be missing agency? Do you, do you, cause I get the sense that even before the mobile emitter, they were doing a lot of really interesting things with the doctor. And I think Picardo has a lot to do, just his performance has a lot to do with why they wanted to give the doctor so much more to do. He was also very involved. Like, Brennan Braga laughs in the interview they talk about in the book, uh, where it was like, Bob Picardo always had ideas. Um, Virtuoso, one of your favorite episodes, Tyler, was actually an idea of his. He really wanted the Doctor to be into opera. (laughs) But there's other elements. Like, um, he was always very invested in making this character into something. And they began to write to that a lot. And I think he said the key episode for him that turned it around was, um, I believe it's in season one, which is the one where the doctor programs himself to be sick, to to understand sort of what his patients go through. And that was where he felt like he really cracked that character. So fascinating, you know. Um, The doctor uh, started off as an interesting enough character. I think by the time I got to season three, four, five, he was my favorite character. By the time he is, you know, taking hollow graphic pictures everywhere he goes and he's singing opera nonstop. <laughs> this is where kind of the the character loses me and I, I think seven of nine is, is probably eclipsing him as my favorite voyager character yeah yeah and actually it was his idea that he pitched to the writers to have the doctor be the mentor for seven he thought the arrogance of the doctor assuming himself to be a mentor in humanity would be really funny and i think it paid off big time so definitely an actor who is very much locked in into his character and um, you know, I don't know that the entire cast was like that, but you really get the sense, at least from season one, that the writers genuinely cared about fleshing out each of the characters, maybe understanding some of the problems, you know, or seeing some of the problems from TNG in season one. So, Cam, I'm going to jump over to my number four pick here. Uh, this is, you know, kind of a uh, one that you've already discussed, and, and we're actually not too, too far off here. You had uh, season two as your number five i have season two as my number four you know i i, I kind of brought up that it was more consistent i think in, than season one they were trying to they were starting to figure things out they built towards what would be ultimately like a great payoff with basics and you've got the introduction of you know folks like lon Suter with episodes like meld i i i think this is like a very very solid sort a very consistent sort of season and again that's why it's more of a mid-tier season for me uh, along with season uh, one so what would be your number four my number four was season seven and um which is really interesting that you had that one right at the back um for me season seven i I agree it's not a great season but to me it feels like when i break it down for the most part they were all episodes i enjoyed there's a few duds in there um you know not even really bad episodes but just stuff like you know unification part two or friendship one like i don't know whatever they're (laughs) totally forgettable but um stuff like the void i thought was really interesting um some of the doctor stuff like author author was really entertaining for me and i thought as i said like i don't think this is the world's greatest lead-in uh to your finale look at what ds9's doing leading into its finale 
I don't know that they ever could have competed with that. Um, and Voyager not wanting to serialize itself too much, I think, held that back. Um, it's always going to feel like a little bit of an abrupt, well, here we are at the end. Um, there we go. But to me, it's just a lot of really great character stories. And, you know, ones you mentioned, but also, you know, a good doctor one. I really enjoy Critical Care. Um there's a lot of good uh, Seven material here, excluding the relationship with Chakotay, which is brutal. So, um, I don't know. I just wound up more positive on this. And I think it's more like, for me, Season 7, while it doesn't hit heights a lot, it feels like it's kind of the fun Star Trek hangout show I kind of enjoy, where I'm tuning in week to week or, you know, watching episode to episode. And... Even if the episode isn't spectacular, it just feels like all the characters at this point are so locked in, I'm just having fun hanging out with them. I just find it bizarre that Ro Laren got a better send-off towards the end of TNG than Seven of Nine did uh, towards the end of Star Trek Voyager. It is so bizarre, um, and I'll post a link in, the, in our show notes to our Endgame review, but um, that the show that was all about taking these characters on this trip back home really had zero interest in any sort of resolutions for the characters. It's a very strange choice. And I don't think at the time there would have been any assumption that the Voyager crew would be jumping to movies because I could understand it if they were like, don't worry, we've got a Voyager movie kind of in our back pocket a la Generations. I don't think that was ever going to be an option. So why not have kind of that bow, that happy ending at the end of the season? It's so bizarre. Yeah, I can tell you as a fan at the time, like, there was not even a pipe dream that any of the Deep Space Nine or Voyager casts would be migrating, you know, to like the big screen. I mean, we had like the Janeway cameo. You might make an argument like, oh, yeah, Worf, he appeared in First Contact, Insurrection, you know, during the time of Deep Space Nine. But yeah, I, like I, I but I totally know what you're saying about like you maybe have to keep things um static to a certain degree on TNG knowing that you're going to continue these adventures on for the next few years they knew that that was not going to be the case with Voyager and not only that they would have been developing Enterprise and it's not like kind of the Worf situation of like well we're going to bring Worf over to DS9 and continue that character's story that was never going to happen on Enterprise taking a Voyager character back to Enterprise so it's not like there was any opportunity for these characters outside of like novels it's so such a strange choice. Who would have been the best character to, uh, I don't know, time travel, who knows, you know, who would have been the best uh, Voyager character to bring over to Enterprise? Hmm, that's an excellent question. And I feel like it's one, I'm kind of talking my way into yeah. the answer. I, I think it's one who's not like your, you know, your total icon. So I don't think it's Seven and I don't think it's Janeway. Um, I, I agree with that. It, I also don't think it's Tuvok because I think he would take uh, some of the thunder away from T'Pol as your go-to Vulcan as well. Yeah, totally. Um, but then I'm like, who's left? Because do we separate Tom and Bolana? Are they both going? That's kind of weird as well. I wouldn't do that. So we're left that. with Harry Kim. And, and Chico Chicote. Chicote as well. No, no, I think he died, Tyler. <laughs> Did he? I don't know. <laughs> We saw we saw no a tombstone idea. for some or an epitaph for some reason. I, I, I don't know. Oh no! Hold on! Hold on! He put up that tombstone so he could disappear back in time, and no one would ever be any the wiser. I just I don't know what he'd be doing on the NX01, and for that matter, I I can't imagine like what Neelix would be offering. You know, maybe he's the chef. Maybe maybe that's chef, and we just never knew it. Maybe Neelix was on the NX01 the entire time, Cam. Uh, maybe um does does um harry kim make the most sense or or kes she wants to redeem herself finally the greatest gift of all um i, I would not have been against kes joining enterprise why not <laughs> um sure why not um and also like if she joined them you know on a space mission then uh well, her lifespan could be advanced at a certain point, so you don't have to explain her coming back to Earth or something like that. But um, She has the powers, like the time travel powers, the yeah. space travel powers. You could explain it away in a much less silly way than, I don't know, Harry Kim suddenly showing up there and he finally gets a promotion to lieutenant. Yeah, like Harry Kim, if you're bringing him in, it's the sort of thing as Scotty and Relics. Like you're coming up with a sci-fi scenario to pop him back there, which... 
not that it wouldn't work. Relics worked great. It's just that it seems kind of like a Star Trek cliche at that point. But the one thing I'll say is, had they done that, I actually think we could have delved into Harry Kim maybe in an interesting way. Um, they never had a lot of time for him on Voyager. Maybe Enterprise would have done something with him a la Worf on DS9. Well, what if his, uh, the timeless version of Harry caught up in the temporal Cold War? You've got the grizzled Harry Kim at this point. Like, I think that if he was the Daniels character, what, what if um, they never explained why Garrett Wong was always in the background of shots in, like, season one, and then they finally, like, revealed him to be kind of the Daniels-esque uh, temporal Cold War agent in the season one finale? Nailed it. I actually think that would have yeah. been really fun, and I actually enjoyed that older Harry Kim that we saw in that episode. I think it would allow Garrett Wong to do something a little more interesting than just kind of playing naive. We never really got a really great character study on Harry Kim, whereas we did in Timeless, that version of Harry. So I think you could actually make that a pretty compelling character. I don't know why uh, Viacom doesn't scoop us up, Cam. We're, we're geniuses. Hey, they would have loved cross-promotion with Enterprise's ratings. If they could have figured out a way to uh, bring Harry Kim over there and boost ratings, they would have done it. I guess they just couldn't crack it. Harry Kim, ratings magnet. <laughs> they should have introduced him in the uh, in the finale of Enterprise. <laughs> okay. Uh, Kim, we are moving away from the mid-tier, going into the top tier of your rankings. I want to hear your number three. Yes, my number three is season six, which you mentioned um, already. Um, to me, this was a season that I just felt like the show was really clicking. This is kind of the core period of when Voyager is, for me, at its best. Um, it's sliding towards that season seven where they're kind of resting on their laurels a bit. But, you know, as you said, Blink of an Eye, Equinox, Part Two, Tinker, Ta uh, Tinker Tenor. Um, but just like... So many great character episodes. I really enjoy Pathfinder with Barkley. Um, Child's Play is actually a really good Echeb story that people don't mention that much, probably because they just confuse it with killer dolls. Um, Child's Play, sure. interesting name for that. Yeah, <laughs> we had Brad Dourif on the show. Maybe it was a tribute oh. to him. I don't know. <laughs> I doubt it, but do go on. Um, yeah, like, I like Lifeline. There's really only, you know, as I said before, Fury's terrible. And there's kind of those batch of mediocre to weak episodes that you also named. So I'm not going to, you know, mention them again. But of course, the uh, Fairhaven program stuff does deserve underlining a second time. I think the reason why Equinox did not pop out to me, you know, as, as that great two-parter that I now realize it to be at this point is it was a really weak cliffhanger moment to close out the all of season five and then you come back with season six and it's a pretty solid episode but i think what happened though is at the time i didn't watch equinox part one like right before i watched equinox part two i think those just blend in so well together you just think of it as kind of a a, a lame act break and then you keep going on with this really great adventure so to me that's definitely a standout episode it's just weird that you have to kind of bifurcate it like you do between those two seasons there but um yeah it's just interesting like um season uh six for me is bottom tier and season six for you is top tier and i just like it this is just really it lends itself the, these rankings lends itself to why this is such a weird weird star trek franchise like weirder than most i, I would say I wonder if I respond more to well i mean not necessarily but i just wonder if that braga era jumps out more to me um, if that could be it, or if it is just how the show really changes its footing when Seven gets added, and a lot of the episodes are being driven by Seven, and for me, those were just stories that grabbed me more. It felt like character dynamics felt more solidified. I, I'll just point out that I only have one Brega-era uh, season in the bottom tier at this point, yeah. so I, I I don't know if it's that. I, I mm. you know... Yeah, so Cam, my number three, this is a top tier season for me, but it is season three, which we talked about, but I, I, I do want to kind of expand on why I have this one so high up. You, you kick it off with Basics, which is just a top-notch season premiere. This is how you get things going. You follow up with Flashback, like a couple stumbles. I don't think uh, either of us are fans of The Shoot, for example, but by the time you have like Future's End, this is actually kind of the end of the Pillar era. I remember Kate Mulgrew saying that this episode would never have been able to have been made had it 
had Michael Piller still been showrunner at that time. You got Q appearances. You got Macrocosm, which is just mm-hmm. action packed. Janeway as Ripley. This is Janeway the action star. Even like smaller character based stuff, like say Fair Trade with Neelix. This is like one. Of, this is a top three Neelix episode for me, and I, I don't have to like grade it on a curve here. I legit think that like this is just a solid character episode for Voyager. I think we both like worst case scenario, Cam. This is the one where, yep. uh, you know, we have the uh, Maquis defense hologram program uh, that uh, one uh, Tuvok created just in case. You already mentioned it, but Distant Origin, that's one of our, like this, there's just so many great things going on. And you cap it off with Scorpion, which just, it does hail in this new era of Voyager. Like Scorpion signifies what Voyager is about to come. And I just find like the, there's like this mix of high concept and character-based storytelling that you find in season three that I, I don't think you quite see that same mix in other seasons. Because I think other seasons lend themselves either to the you know high concept stuff or more towards the character-based stuff. And this is why I really do think season three holds up as a top-tier season in my books. I would also be remiss to not mention the episode Rise from that season is a low-tier one for me as well. How but, ironic. Um <laughs> Yeah, no kidding, right? Um, I, I remember though season three for me, and I wonder if I would have this experience, the you know, going back and watching it again. I was really invested in the character of Kess and sort of that evolution of understanding who this character was, like those powers, the mentoring under Tuvok, and I felt like that stuff was much stronger in season two. And I remember season three feeling like they were kind of losing that thread or making it kind of just confusing and all over the place. And I, I wonder if I revisit season three, if I'll feel the same way, but I remember that at the time. See, that's so funny. I actually think the opposite. I thought that this is actually where they figured Kess's character out in a way that they had not in the prior seasons. And it was very obvious to me that had Garrett Wong not been named as one of People Magazine's and Tyler Orton's sexiest people alive that year... <laughs> Uh, he would have been shown the door. He like we kind of saw it with eight four seven two disease that he came down with, and it would have been uh, one Jennifer Leon who would have continued on with the series in his place because I think they were giving her way more agency than she had ever possessed before. And you have really strong episodes in my books, anyway. I, I know you disagree, but I really do think Warlord is a great showcase for Jennifer Leon. And then you give us before and after the time travel episode, which alludes to Year of Hell, and you've got mm-hmm. her really coming into focus with her powers like i think this is just a, a like the season for Kess in my books before and after is fantastic I, I i need to revisit this season but yeah i just remember at the time even being frustrated by this and yeah i'm not a fan of warlord that one uh, uh i've mentioned before but yeah i don't know like season three just never grabbed me as much but um why don't we jump to your next um slot so i guess slot number two it's a Brega era season, top tier season for me, Cam. Season five of Star Trek Voyager. Um, <laughs> everything about this is just like from beginning to end, and this is how I like to, you know, kind of judge things. It's just solid. You start it off with night. You give us the Equinox cliffhanger that I had just talked about in our last set of rankings there. But in between, you have important episodes like Extreme Risk, in which Bellana is dealing with her trauma knowing that the maquis are no more timeless that is one of my favorite episodes i think one of yours as well we both love counterpoint Mm -hmm. and someone to watch over me but cam i think i have really reconsidered like uh dark frontier over you know the last few years we've been doing the show this might actually be my favorite you know two-parter slash extended length episode that voyager's ever done it is such a dark, you know, no pun intended episode, but it's got this heist element. It's got this psychological element between Seven and the Borg Queen. It is just like, I. it might be like Voyager doing what Voyager does best. And even just kind of fun things like relativity, like in which we have, you know, the uh, 29th century Starfleet vessel. You know, it's, it's just, this, this is just a top season, no question at all for me. This is season five of Star Trek Voyager. So season five isn't my number two, but I'll talk about it. Um, season five is an embarrassment of riches. And that's something I found with my top two um, ranking episodes, uh, seasons, um, was that 
it was very hard for me to choose between the two because it really felt like this is Voyager at its peak for me. And season five is a fantastic one. But um, so uh, I'll just say, like, I agree with a lot of what you've said. Even episodes like, say, Bride of Chaotica, it may not be my favorite episode of all time, but they're making iconic episodes right there in season five. So there's a lot, a lot to love about that one. But for me, I actually slotted season four in number two, and it was a pretty close competition for me, like very close. Um, So season four has so many great episodes, just as season five does. You know, you've got Scorpion part two, which is... You know, we've complained about Best of Both Worlds Part 2 not living up to Best of Both Worlds Part 1, but Scorpion Part 2 pretty much lives up to Scorpion Part 1 and maybe even outdoes it with the introduction of Seven of Nine. You also, in Season 4, have Year of Hell. Message in a Bottle is a great episode. I'm a big fan of the episode Prey with the Herogen. Uh, Living Witnesses is one of the great Doctor stories. There's just so much going on. Again, like, Voyager was really good at coming up with high-concept episodes, and I think in season four, they're really locked into who their characters are. I mean, they already kind of figured that out earlier, but they're finding ways to make character-driven, high-concept stories in the Star Trek mold. And so many great, great stories. And um, to me, the only episode I just want to mention was the <laughs> the um, sort of the um, uh, unfortunate happening in season four was Concerning Flight, an episode I still can't believe that I made it through. <laughs> You have far less love for one Leonardo da Vinci than I do, but I am a bit of a renaissance man, as they like to say. (laughs) Just so many scenes of characters on a bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Cam, look, I I also want to highlight an episode like Hope and Fear. This is Mm -hmm. the finale. It is not an explosive finale. It is not a cliffhanger, but I think thematically it might be just kind of the strongest representation of a season all encapsulated into one episode that you cap things off with and this is one where seven of nine who we've only known for a season she's really come to grips with what her identity is who her family is and what home actually means and i think that is what voyager really is all about and i think season four is just absolutely fantastic you you really did highlight a lot of these episodes that that i would have highlighted but even just something like the gift I think uh-huh. th- this, okay, we know what happens after the gift, but it is actually like probably the best send-off that a main character on, on Voyager got, because w- what's your competition? Neelix? I mean, yeah, I, I guess it's um, corrupted a little bit by Fury. Um, but... I, I acknowledge this. I, I, I acknowledge this. Sure, but, sure. Uh, you know, I, you know. Did you? I actually, in that book that I was reading, they talked too about how they were they're pl- they were planning to make Kess an ongoing villain of the series, and they were I like, "Wouldn't it be great? Yeah, wouldn't it be great if the like beloved character of you know the first few, the uh, you know kind of the um, young naive character becomes like the villain of the series?" And I'm like, "No, no, it's not great. Maybe in a different show, maybe with a different character, uh, this doesn't work." <laughs> well, I guess I'll tell Denise Crosby what you have to say about that. Mm. Well, hey, different series, it worked, right? Different character. Um, so I'm a, I'm a fan of uh, Denise Crosby as a villain. That's more fun. But no, like, uh, yeah, season four, another one that actually I really dig is Scientific Method. I yes. enjoy, yeah, I enjoy when Star Trek does these sort of horror stories. And this is a really top tier one as well. Um, there's a lot of good stuff in the season. Even like Hunters, which introduces the Herogen, is a really strong episode. Yeah, what do we... Okay, so we are talking about, like, the, the number two, number one picks. Ours are flipped over. I think we can take it, like, uh, as a whole. Um, why don't you share some of your thoughts on season five? Well, I think you actually summed it up really well. Just when you talk about those episodes, you know, whether it's an Equinox, a Dark Frontier, someone to watch over me, it really feels like Voyager at its best. I think seasons four and five, the show is just humming. It's at that perfect point in the show's run where everyone under, understands exactly what show they're making. And from here, they're just only going to get complacent. I don't think they're going to lose the thread of what the show is, but they kind of are just like resting on their laurels as they get into season seven. Well, based on my rankings. I... <laughs> well, <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm talking more for yeah my experience. But yeah, of course. yeah like um, season five. Just so many great episodes. I loved Bliss, which I revisited on our Hidden Gems episode, Course Oblivion. 
Again, a great idea to set up this alternate Voyager crew and just pull the rug out from under you. Um, just a lot of creativity, a lot of really interesting sci-fi ideas going on. Um, even an episode, and I know people are going to laugh to hear this one brought up, 1159. What an interesting episode of Star Trek. I mean, we had it on our um, Off the Beaten Track. I, I We called it something along those lines. Oddball episodes. Um, I never thought I'd get an episode about Janeway's ancestor um, contributing to the Millennium Gate or something. Like, okay. Interesting. I also like how you thought the Millennium Gate was an actual thing. I was planning our road trip. I was really yeah. bummed out to find out it wasn't real. <laughs> we should have called that episode Off the Beaten Trek. <laughs> yeah. Why did we not? We're, we're such idiots. Yeah, well, sometimes we like torture ourselves over these uh, titles. Um, yeah. that, that one we should have workshopped a little more. The one thing I'll say, though, about Season 5 that um, I didn't hold against it too much, but it has... Um, probably my least favorite episode of the entire run, which is the fight. And In the Flesh is kind of a... Uh, well, we talked about Kess having a really good um, outro with um, the gift. Um, In the Flesh was not the greatest outro for Species 8472. You really have something against Boothby, don't you? It seems so. I feel so bad. Like, it should have been really exciting having Ray Walston, you know, on the show again. I've read so many loving anecdotes of the cast talking about working with Ray Walston and how much he, you know, what an impact he had on them and how much he meant, you know, just working on that show. And I watch those two episodes and I'm like, boy, this is the worst. <laughs> I, I, I just want to highlight, though, like, season four, season five, this is the definitive Braga era. And you had kind mm -hmm. of maybe uh, hypothesized before you knew my full rankings, of course, that maybe I just wasn't into the Braga era as much. I, not not at all true, but I will say this, and this is interesting. I think by the time you got towards like seasons six, seven, uh, like Berman and Braga became kind of a thing on the internet message boards. And, and like people just kept complaining about how Star Trek was just feeling like more and more stale at this point. It was just getting more and more formulaic. It was just repeating itself. It was not character-based the way that maybe we saw in Deep Space Nine and maybe to a lesser degree um, TNG as well. And I, I just, I don't know if the vitriol flung at Brandon Braga over the years is necessarily deserved. I, I know this is the man responsible for uh, These Are the Voyages, the Enterprise finale. I, I get it, but... Um, also, look, he did a lot of really, really solid episodes as showrunner. So I, I just want to like uh, point out the fact that uh, I, I'm not amongst the Brandon Braga haters. And Cam, you can attest to this. Anyone goes to convention, he seems to be just the most humble man, uh, the most apologetic man, the, somebody who's actually willing to kind of acknowledge like mistakes that were made creatively over the years as well, which that was not his reputation as the bad boy of Star Trek back in the day. I love the term bad boy of Star Trek. It's such an oxymoron. But um, uh, I also really want to direct people, if they haven't you know, already purchased it or whatever, to check out the special features on the Enterprise Blu-rays, where Brandon Braga basically takes you on a guided tour through each season of Enterprise. And he's so candid about what went wrong, why he was struggling, um, his lack of sort of energy when he got to those first couple seasons of Enterprise at that point, for, you know, just having worked on the franchise for so long. It is one of the, I think, one of the best special features I've watched, that collection of special features on that set for a creator really just basically opening up to the fans and saying, here's what I wanted to do, here's why it didn't work. And I think for me, um, I can never hate Braga because... Ultimately, for, he does so much interesting to me, even in episode. I know everyone hates Threshold. We've talked about it to death. But that's like a Braga failure that's so clearly inspired by someone who's in love with horror filmmaking and wants to kind of try to bring that to Star Trek and totally stumbles. But nonetheless, it's interesting to me to dissect. Um, I find even coasting Braga... Um, fairly entertaining which is maybe why i ranked like season six higher for example I, I don't know maybe that's part of it even when braga isn't firing on all cylinders i find his sensibilities very watchable and also i'm curious if we need to relitigate the whole brandon braga as you know the worst thing on star trek or however you want to phrase it in comparison to some of the writing going on on i don't know season three discovery picard season one i think uh 
Bragg is looking pretty good these days. I, I don't think Elnor will ever, uh, you know, ha- ha- give Bra- Bren Bragg anything to worry about in terms of that mantle there. Elnor, not the greatest gift of all. <laughs> no, no. So, Kevin, why don't I run through our rankings? Uh, this is the first time we finally had to just say, screw it, we're not going to come to a consensus. I suspect, though, when we get to our Enterprise rankings next month, I think we can come to a consensus, even if we might disagree a little bit here or there. I think there's room, more room for compromise than I think we had uh, for Star Trek Voyager, and I've, I've probably explained why, and I think it's reflected in fandom as well. But for you, Cam, your number seven was season one, number six, season three, number five, season two, number four, season seven, number three, season six, number two, season four, number one, season five. I have ranked them as such. First, or I should say last, is season seven, followed by season six, season one, season two, season three, season five, season four. So yeah, really fascinating how that how that worked out. I really didn't expect such a divergence in uh, opinions on the seasons, but I think it made it a lot more interesting because I think you and I tend to agree a fair amount on you know Star Trek rankings or you know episode opinions. It's interesting because you and I were very close on seasons two as well as seasons mm-hmm. four and five. I think where we had the biggest divergence is seasons six and seven as well as season um well we weren't even that far with season one either and it was mostly just where we ultimately wanted it was like you seven and six were more kind of like mid-tier seasons to you although you do have six in your top tier whereas seasons six and seven were more kind of bottom tier for me that's kind of where we did get a little you know uh divergent in our own rankings well and i think also like we could look at them as sort of, um, you know, kind of mid-level Star Trek at that point. And it's like sort of maybe a, a difference in what we appreciate in mid-level Star Trek. That could be part of it as well. Yeah. Well, look, Cam, I'm looking forward to our rankings for Enterprise. And I think, okay, so after we do the Enterprise rankings, I'm just floating this out to you at this point. We'll follow up. And I guess the next up would be like, say... You know discovery but it, it's only three seasons we also have you know picard i i think that'll be a very easy episode of ranking because it's only one season um <laughs> we'll be midway through season uh two of lower decks i i wonder i'll float this to maybe we kind of push that ranking it's originally scheduled for august what if we push that ranking a little bit down the road uh because i guess lower decks will be back by august as well yeah maybe we can come back and we can perhaps rank uh, Lower Decks uh, Seasons 1 and 2 together with Picard Season 1 and Discovery Seasons 1 through 3, perhaps even 4, depending how far we push back the next batch of rankings. Then we're ranking about like 7 or 8 seasons versus, you know, like, I don't know, here's 3 seasons of a show. Here's 2 right. seasons of a show, you know? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, if Renegades can get some more episodes out, we could also include those seasons. (laughs) Don't forget, Star Trek continues. That as well. Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at facebook.com slash subspacepod. Let us know your rankings. Um, See if it matches either of ours. Tyler, what are we doing next time? Cam, we've been trying to crack this one for a long, long time, but we finally figured out how we are going to focus entirely on one William T. Riker for an episode. We're going to frame it like this. Has Riker slash Jonathan Frakes kind of overtaken Spock slash Nimoy as the ambassador of Star Trek? There's some very interesting parallels between both the actors as well as the characters. This is one I'm really looking forward to, Cam. Yeah, I think this is a really um, fun topic and also one that's appropriate now as it seems conventions are going ahead. We can talk a little bit maybe about Jonathan Frakes just in our experiences with him at conventions and what he means to fans as well. Cam, are are we going to a convention this year? I have no idea at this point what's going on. I I I live day by day. (laughs) 
<laughs> and just for those that, that might forget, uh, we've we brought it up a couple times. So, like, Cam and I, we both live in uh, Canada, and the borders remain closed right now. But you and I, it looks as if we'll be getting our second doses um, rather soon. And if that means that we'll be opening borders soon because, you know, they're, uh, the Canadian government is more confident about bringing tourists in to help jumpstart the economy. I, I don't know. I'm uh, Maybe we'll have like a last minute uh, flight to book or something. Who knows? And if that's the case, I, I would love to have the opportunity to do another panel as we've done through all the other conventions that you and I have attended uh, over the last six years or uh, six conventions over the last seven years, I should say. Although knowing our luck, they'll open the borders on the Sunday, the day that closes the convention. <laughs> we'll be there for the Rat Pack. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V is in, vis-a-vis, Smith. You can find me at Reporten. That's R-E-P-O-R-T-T is in, Trek continues, O-N. Okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. Transfer complete.